listening to all of you yesterday both introduce yourself and just ask the questions that you've asked and now I've been in India for not quite a month and I've been listening to lots of questions from disciples and from new newer people on the spiritual path and there there's just this endless pattern that I I see and I feel like a great deal of difficulty that people end up having in life, which then begins to reflect into the spiritual path, is we're, we're not clear on the basic concept. And if you're working a little bit off from what the route actually is, it's always extremely confusing. And it's not that we're way off, it's just that we're a little off. I remember when I was living up at the, what is the seclusion retreat, which at that time was really what Ananda was, very isolated. And in the very early stages, there was, there was simply no man-made intrusion in the natural world there at all. And one moonless night, I did not have a flashlight and I was trying to find my way back to my little trailer, which I knew fairly well how to get there, but somehow or another, I wandered off the path and I really, I, I finally realized I had no idea where I was. And so I just sat down and just waited. And then after not too long a time, I heard somebody else moving around in the woods. And so I called out to them. And they very amusedly found me about a foot and a half off the trail. <laughs> but I just didn't know where I was. And I just couldn't go forward because I didn't know if forward was backwards and so I was immobilized just because I was just a little bit off. And I've seen that people in talking about the spiritual path, about worrying about our own progress, about contemplating the issue of attunement, just all the questions that you raised last night and people have been raising to me ever since I arrived, whoever, since I myself started on the spiritual path. I just feel like there's just this fundamental tilt that's about a foot and a half off the path, but if we could just get back on it, everything would just be a lot easier. And I've, some of you have heard me say some parts of this, but it seems important enough to me that I think I want to really say it all again. Okay. Swamiji commented about some, uh, pre what I would call pretend, pretend spiritual teachers. And they were sincere. He wasn't criticizing them for their sincerity, but they had this idea that because spirituality looks a certain way, that the way to be spiritual is to try to be, try to be what that looks like. And, you know, that can be a, a certain aloofness, a certain sort of way of walking or standing or looking or something like this, or what we imagine to be the right attitudes and, and like that, but it's not a, a spontaneous perception that's growing from the inside. It's an idea of what I should be like, and I'll put it on from the outside. This is how dogmatic religions develop, is that this is what I'm supposed to be. The, the best part of Ananda in the first eight or ten years was that nobody had any idea how they were supposed to behave. <laughs> it was just completely up for grabs, so to speak. Swami Kriyananda kept himself 
completely un, uh, un well he was always unpretentious and unaffected but he sort of held at bay any external sort of affirmations of his position he moved among us in the most casual just sort of easygoing way so that there was no way that you could look around and sort of decide how you were supposed to behave and because of that it was a little more confusing for many people who were there and we grew in a certain way a little more slowly because there was a certain lack of clarity and i remember giving some satsangs during those years i remember giving them and then later i found my notes and i was saying to people look if you don't tune into swami it's not going to work for you here i mean just sort of like that and that was like not everybody believed me that was what we were dealing with i had to sort of assert that i i said look i've watched if you come here and you just ignore swami ji it just doesn't work for you people said oh that's your point of view huh like that but i mean he was the head of the ashram for heaven's sakes but still it was just like oh that's your point of view and it was marvelous because you had to figure it out for yourself that was just the way it went gradually over time the positive thing is it spreads we develop our own culture um people come up for blessings there's just there's just sort of ways <clears throat> now we even have color coded costumes some of us you know which is positive in a certain way and also disastrous in another way because you put on your color coded costume and then it it pretends it makes it makes it seem like you're somebody which none of this is helpful none of this is helpful because it starts causing us the way i i can only think of it it causes us to go to war with ourselves which is a little bit confusing because the mahabharata is a war the ramayana is a war you know the iliad is a war i mean even almost all spiritual epics are some kind of a big battle and it's usually a horrible battle to the death i've told the story of the mahabharata a number of times just for the entertainment and the edification of those who want to hear it and uh one day i told the whole mahabharata story in one day i usually i would do it over the course of several evenings <coughs> but just for the fun of running the whole thing all together i did it in one full day and we had a we had a closing time 9 to 6 <clears throat> but i told people you'll know the story is over when everybody is dead <laughs> except the one or two who are ever living but if anybody any hero is still living you know we have another chapter to go because everybody dies in the end that's how the story finishes in all the epics everybody dies because that's how it happens isn't it and everybody fights and struggles to the end so when even i when i'm talking about the conscious super su- superconscious and subconscious we talk about the subconscious is everything that you have done up until now including all your past incarnations the superconscious is what your divine potential is and what god is calling you to become and the conscious is the battleground in which those two forces simply fight it out it's kurukshetra right there and that's why when we're in the waking state and even sometimes we're in the subconscious state we often feel like these two forces are pulling on us part of us knows where we're trying to go and part of us would rather not go there and that's a long discussion and 
worth having. We can touch on parts of it. But all of that is true. But then what happens, I've noticed, is that a lot of times what actually turns out to be the most detrimental idea we have, or even very simple terms, our worst quality is often our best quality carried just a little too far. I myself, for example, I'm very enthusiastic. I tend to feel that anything that's going on is, is, belongs to me. In the early years of Ananda, I just felt I had authority over everything that was happening there. It was my community. <clears throat> and that enthusiasm, of course, is expansive and it's beneficial and it's wonderful for me, but carried a little too far, it becomes scattered, it becomes interfering, um, it becomes overbearing and unwelcome. But it's not that I need to stop completely, I just need to pull it back to the point that's in balance. You know, people who are generous can be, as they say, generous to a fault. They want to help other people, but as a consequence they're inserting themselves in places where they're not really wanted, or their generosity becomes martyrdom. And far from being joyful, they end up always being, you know, sacrificial and really not a lot of fun. You just pull it back just that little bit. So this fact that we do have the subconscious and the superconscious, we do have the ego and we do have, well, for lack of a better word, the soul, but our higher self and our lower self, and they are not always in harmony. But what we end up doing is we end up fiercely repudiating one thing and then trying desperately to be something else. And what we end up with is in a constant state of uncomfortable war with ourselves. And I have yet to see anybody make real spiritual progress if they're, if they're internally in conflict all the time. Now, it, it requires some subtle understanding to appreciate this. For example... St. Francis had tremendous disregard for his physical well-being. He referred to his physical body as brother donkey. <laughs> and as a consequence, he, he saw it as somewhat separate from himself, himself. There was his divine aspiration, and then there was the physical reality of his life. Now bear in mind, this was a much tougher time physically. As Swamiji said, you know, everybody was physically uncomfortable a great deal of the time. So it wasn't like you lived in air-conditioned houses with electricity and good meals provided for you. So you had to be a little more uh, extreme even to do austerity in a context where everybody was having to be pretty austere. So, you know, the lack of a cloak, the lack of, of, of uh, good shoes and so on, the kind of thing that Francis did. But even still, you see, he considered his, his body was brother donkey. Now, it was a donkey, it's true, but it was also his brother. And by that very relationship, he wasn't calling it the devil. And he wasn't dismissing it as nothing at all. He was just saying it's brother donkey. So it has, brother donkey has certain characteristics. I was at breakfast this morning with, with all of you. And at some point, Mama Dog, uh-huh, who's one of the oldest ashram residents here, apparently felt that we were under threat. <laughs> and she started patrolling the perimeter, 
with a great deal of vigor and so on like that. You know, exactly what the threat was. Maybe there really was a real threat that we were all saved from. Who knows? But it was her job and she went out there to protect us from it. And we don't say that she's stupid for being a dog. In fact, it was, I, was very, I was very touched that she was so concerned about our well-being. Now, I'm projecting that she was concerned about our well-being. Maybe it was just her own that she was thinking about. Who knows? But even as Mama Dog, she was still herself. She was still an aspect of the divine. And the only way to be able to work with her is the, is the way we have to work with everything. Reverence for all life and seeing God in all. So we get this confusing idea in our mind that, um, well, let, let me put it like this. You know, in the greater scheme of things, you know, I am not more important than you, but I am also not less important than you, if we can understand this. And what people often do, what we often do, is in an attempt to be humble and in an attempt to sort of push aside what we consider ego, we actually then distort the equation one more time in the wrong direction. There was a, a group, one of the Ananda teams in one of the communities, and there was one person who was very selfless by nature, generous and um, often quite willing to give up her own convenience for the sake of others. But she had the false idea that to have any reality at all was somehow a spiritual error. And then she did battle with her own sense of self by pretending that she didn't have one. And it manifested in a very peculiar way. She would always volunteer for certain positions, volunteer to carry on when others were on vacation, volunteer to take everybody's day off and then be incapable of following through because it was simply a promise bigger than her energy could manage. But because she always uh, asserted a false reality, no one else could argue with her. And so people just began to know she'll sign up for those slots and we're going to have to cover them. <laughs> Whereas the, because she never wanted to make herself more valuable than anyone else. So she thought the way to do that was to always make herself less valuable. Now, Master has a very interesting definition of humility. And he said, humility is simply self-honesty. That's a, a very deep and a very important idea because to be humble, to exercise humility is, is a, a primary virtue on the spiritual path. But humility is not, oh, I'm unimportant, I'm unimportant, I'm unimportant. When um, I was particularly, um, I, used to, I used to substitute a sense of guilt for my transactions for any effort to actually overcome them. And it took me a long time to understand the difference between what it was just to feel guilty and what it was to actually put out energy to change. I, I, because I was so miserable feeling guilty, I thought that was the same thing. And Swamiji, as Swamiji put it, he said, if all you do is throw dust on your own head, he said, all you're thinking about is dust and your own head, <laughs> which is not the same as actually being conscious of the presence of God. So true humility is just self-honesty. And so self-honesty also includes, well, I'm quite capable of doing this. 
You know, this is something that I really love. This is something that I have great talent for. for. This is something I've spent my lifetime developing. And that's still humility because it doesn't say, therefore I'm more important and everyone in the world should look at me. It just says quite simply that this is who I am. And then conversely, I'm not very good at something like that. I, I have a, a, an inability to use keys and locks that sort of borders on genius. I always manage to get confused. I'm staying in an apartment by myself and for the first six times I went inside of it, I either made someone walk upstairs with me just to stick the key in and just go like that. And then I got to the point where I'd go upstairs by myself, but I wouldn't let Aditya drive away until I was waving at him from the balcony. <laughs> just because I know, I just know that about myself. And many other far more important qualities are just not in my portfolio. It's just the way that I'm made and I know it. Other things I do perfectly well. If we're living in a state of self-honesty, it says quite simply, I am a child of God. I am not better than anyone, but nor am I any worse. And everything about us is made by the divine. And that's not an excuse. Swamiji was speaking at what uh, we would call one of the New Age conferences that they have, a lot, have had a lot of in America. And there was one of them where Everyone, somebody was urging everyone to love yourself and they even actually put your arms around yourself and give yourself a big hug. Swami got up and said, you know, there's so much about us that's unlovable. <laughs> he said like that. He said, why should we love those aspects of ourselves? He said, we, we should love the divine within us, but we should also be realistic about all the rest of it. In another context, a woman had suffered a great disappointment in her life and someone else had been the instrument of that disappointment and it, their behavior was questionable to say the best about it. And she was trying to overcome the hurt and the betrayal that she felt. She came to Swamiji and said, Sir, I've been meditating on it and I feel like everything that happened was just perfect. Everybody behaved just the way God would have wanted them to behave. Swami said, no, they didn't. <laughs> he said, people behaved very badly, just like that. And then he said, don't comfort yourself by telling yourself a lie, which was also very interesting, isn't it? True humility is just self-honesty. Truth is the truth. So we don't comfort ourselves by saying all my impulses are perfect because they all come to God. There was a very popular pseudo-spiritual teacher in America who for a period of time had hundreds, perhaps even thousands of followers. And someone at Ananda explained why he was so popular because his fundamental teaching was do whatever you want, do as much of it as you want, and just call it spiritual. <laughs> so, so people were indulging every selfish impulse they had. But he declared that it was all spiritual because it all comes from God. This is foolishness, extremely popular, but complete foolishness. So this is the line that we're having to walk all the time. Much in us is not lovable. Much in us, it's not lovable for, for a very simple reason. It's not our friend. It's going to take us in directions that in the end will not bring us the fulfillment that we're looking for. 
And what we also have to understand, it's all just, in a very real sense, it's all metaphysics. There's nothing really, even though it feels terribly complicated and mysterious, it isn't really. If we behave in ways that are selfishly self-affirming, that are, that are outside of truth, then we will pay the consequences. We just move off of the, the plane of truth and then we get pushed back onto it. And we've been doing this for many incarnations. But the plane of truth also includes, well, just very simply when Jyotish was trying to urge his son, when his son was about six or seven, that he'd been bullied or he'd been mistreated by a boy in school. And Jyotish was trying to explain to his son, you know, that because Jyotish knew the families, this was all within Ananda, the boy was having some trouble in his home and he was taking it out on the other kids. So Jyotish tried to say to his son, you know, he's, he's struggling, he just needs friendship, you, you just need to be nice to him. And his little boy said, Daddy, I just don't want to be that good. <laughs> so it's also part of truth. And this, is, this, takes, this takes great, um, actually great humility to just be able to say, I know, I know what the right action is and I'm just not going to do it or I'm not capable of doing it, or I don't even want to do it. I'm just not ready to give up my bad attitude. But humility is just self-honesty. It's just saying what's true. But it also then leaves the reality that someday I will. You see, this is what we're trying to get to in our spiritual lives. This is where we're going. This is where we're going. This is where we're going. You know, Every one of these masters came to self-realization through exactly the, the soul process that all of us are going through. Many of you have heard me say that before, but I never cease to wonder about it. You know, this is, this is the power of true Sanatana Dharma um, in, the, in the West, where there's no tradition of avatars. People just don't know, they really didn't know what to do with Jesus. I mean, Jesus was Eastern, but by the time he became part of the West, they didn't have the Bhagavad Gita to say, whenever virtue declines and vice predominates, I, the infinite spirit, take visible form. So that we'd have some idea of who Jesus was. And then when Jesus said, you know, I am the son of God, there's some philosophical context for it in Sanatana Dharma, because the Christ consciousness is the offspring of the infinite, but in the way it developed in Christianity, they had no idea who he is. So he's, a, he's just a single anomaly who just popped out of somewhere. He's the only one there ever was. Yeah, it's the truth. You can laugh, all right, if you want to. I mean, he just popped out of nowhere. They have no idea where he came from. The fact that Jesus, for the, the 18 lost years, went back to India and studied with these masters is what Master tells us was completely unacceptable to his disciples and they simply took it out of the Bible because how could the perfect son of God have a guru? They just, there was again, no context for it. But what that did, you see, is that because Jesus just popped out of nowhere and has no context, it doesn't leave us with anything to do except to pray for his grace and to be saved. And so that's not a false teaching because the guru does take our karma and he can save us. But both Judaism, Judaism 
because they rejected the concept of a self-realized master at, at all. They're still waiting. The Messiah is still on his way. But the Jews don't really know who the Messiah is either from the point of view of Sanat and Dharma. And the Christians, because they made Jesus singular in an attempt to express their reverence for him, none of them have anything to do, which is why Master came. And what I mean by that, and that's a long convoluted explanation, if we understand that self-realization is the end of the road that we're walking on, and our reverence for these masters, which is as deep and pure and magnificent as any disciple of Jesus feels for Jesus, but we understand how they got there, and therefore we understand what we're supposed to do, which is we have to walk where I walked, which is what Jesus did tell his disciples, but they didn't understand. So every one of these masters lived through exactly the same experiences that we're having. Exactly the same, because it's vibrations of consciousness. If you look at the chakras, the lowest chakra in, in this context represents complete commitment to matter as the only reality. The opposite chakra represents complete attunement with God. And every single thing that we do represents some vibration somewhere between those two realities. And we're not like one little entity that moves up in a little box like this. We're kind of a big blob that's spread out over this whole thing. And we alternately respond from all these different energies. But that's exactly what every self-realized master had to go through. Swamiji made the comment, has made the comment on more than one occasion, that his subconscious mind is not different from, from any other aspect of himself. In other words, there's nothing stored there. That all of the, all of the roiling, ununderstood realities have just all been settled. And that the energy in him would just flow completely unimpeded by wrong understanding. And the way you accomplish that is step by step. And so wherever we're standing is exactly where every single saint and master has stood. So why would it serve us to be angry about it, to be guilty about it, to be in despair about it, to be divided and half of me is evil and half of me is good? We're just this, this bundle of self-definitions that's gradually defining itself. And the more we obsess about what is ego, what is self, what is God's will, what is my will, you know, what is right, what is wrong. It's not that we should passively accept that everything we've done is right and I love myself just the way I am. We have to be perfectly honest. A great deal of who I am and what I do is not happiness producing. And I'll be the first to cheer when I finally transcend it. But even if it's brother donkey, you know, or, or, or mama dog, <laughs> whatever it might be, it's still just me, the way God made me. And we need to put all the players at the table and we need to decide sort of where we're going to, which one of these we're going to back. And every time we slip and somebody else sort of, I think of it like a football team or a, a soccer team out on the field, you know, 
there's the ball and the ball is our point of focus and our consciousness and it's being kicked in lots of different directions and different sides are working with it and one great player is running toward the goal and it looks like he's going to make it but then it gets stolen by someone else and then all of a sudden it's heading back the opposite direction isn't that what it feels like you know everything is just going just fine and it looks like we're really going to break free this time and then suddenly we don't even have the ball anymore and we turn around and we try to figure out where where it went but it's all if you think of it on the sports field as as swamiji said if you're playing a game of tennis and somebody hits a really good shot you don't burst into tears and ask them please don't shoot it like that you know you just rush over there and try to send it back now this brings me to you know another important theme for what we're trying to talk about today but that's what no wait there's more to that thought swamiji says the great difficulty people make is that, and this is where we get a foot and a half off the path the great difficulty people mistake people make is they they look at what they're supposed to be like and what they would like to become i meditate you know i never miss a kriya meditation i meditate so many x number of hours a day i never lose my temper i'm always remembering god whatever it might be and we rightly desire to be in that state of consciousness but we put more attention and more commitment to being that ideal person than we do to the job of overcoming the obstacles that keep me from being that person and we actually get confused and think that the spiritual path is defined by being that person when in fact the spiritual path is defined by a cheerful determined willingness to deal with all those things that assert themselves between us and that ideal and for this reason swamiji said most of the time master talked about right attitude not necessarily in public but when he was with the disciples most of all he talked about right attitude and swamiji also put it that way he said if you have the right attitude toward your life he said everything else will follow and if you have the wrong attitude towards your life many of your efforts will end either in confusion or in disappointment now what we have to now understand is exactly what right attitude is right attitude first of all is a cheerful willingness to be able to just perceive things as they are accepting reality is a phrase that swamiji would use a lot in fact when people would talk about forgiveness Swami would uh, would prefer a preferential way of saying that was it's not about forgiving it's just simply accepting and like like who is there to forgive and what is there to forgive I've always personally felt uncomfortable with that I- idea of forgiving because it makes me just a little taller than whoever I'm forgiving you know you have behaved in a way that's really terrible but I'm so magnanimous I will forgive you that has never felt to me like freedom So Swamiji's uh progressing it to the point of you don't forgive someone you just accept. You accept that this is who you are. This is who they are. This is the circumstances. I just accept that this is reality. Why would I be standing against reality? Why would I posit my preference against what is? And that's the same phrase that we're working with 
in terms of having a right attitude toward the spiritual path, which also means a right attitude toward myself on the spiritual path. And the right attitude is, yes, that's what it looks like when it's finished. And gosh, this is what it looks like when I'm not finished. You know, sometimes people would say things about, and they do, and, and Swamiji even encourages us, you know, to feel that I'll be a Jeevan Mukta in this incarnation and I'll be free in this lifetime. And personally, I've never been able to get much energy from that because I sort of say that's, that's what that looks like and this is what this looks like. And it confuses me to try to put myself there. But, but some people hear that as a sort of uh, sinking back into the present reality. No, I don't think so. It's just accepting that if this is where I'm standing, this is where I have to put my foot. Because if we, we need to know what the horizon is, but we also need to know where to put our foot. Otherwise, we're just sort of standing here trying to get there and constantly being disappointed when something comes and shows us that we're not. And right attitude on the spiritual path is a cheerful acceptance that I am on the spiritual path. And this is what happens. And what happens when we declare ourselves to be sincere and begin to do that work which basically expands our awareness. You know, expanding awareness. We don't need the word God. We don't need the word Guru. We don't need the word word disciple. Everything about life is expanding our awareness. you You look at little children and they're so illustrative of us as Divine Mother's children. They're perfectly intelligent. Their entire consciousness is present merely because you die as an adult and are reborn as a baby. It's not your consciousness that becomes baby. It's just your ability to function in this world. Swamiji told us once of a very interesting dream, which unfortunately I never thought to ask him a couple of key questions on it. And the way he told us, I believe it was a true superconscious experience. He said a delegation came to him from another planet and the planet wanted Swamiji to come to their planet and be their spiritual savior because I guess they didn't have one (laughs) and they had scanned, this was obviously from a, a more advanced civilization than ours. They had seen him and Swami didn't say this, but I think it was true. They saw that he was somewhat unappreciated. <laughs> he was unappreciated. People didn't quite know who he was. He was being persecuted as he always was by people who should have respected him. So they thought he might be open in his dream. And they came and they talked to him about you know, what, what they wanted. And Swami said he felt very uh, drawn to them and inspired and he really wanted to help. And he was just on the verge of saying yes. Now, the question I never asked him was, would you have died? Or would you have lived in parallel universes? Who knows? It was only a dream. But he said he was just on the verge of saying yes. But then he said it occurred to him, oh, I'll have to learn another language. (laughs) I'll have to familiarize myself with a whole other culture. And it just seemed like a little too much effort. So he respectfully and gratefully declined. And they were disappointed and they went away. Now, Master talks about being a baby in the crib. You know, this is a couple of sentences in autobiography. And he talks about prayerful surges in many languages arose in his little baby self. And that gradually he realized that these people were speaking Bengali. So he gradually began to speak Bengali to them. 
not that but he you know he could have spoken anything he just became aware of the conditions into which he had been born now how much of this is a story that the avatar tells how much is really what the experience is because when they assume a body they assume all the conditions of it master was a baby and babies don't know how to walk babies don't know how to talk he he had to do all of all of those things and he gradually became aware of what the conditions of living in this world are well that process never stops you know all of us as so-called grown-ups or not so grown-up whatever we are we're still just trying to f- become aware of what it means to be a human being at all in the culture in which we're born the circumstances that we're given all of these things we're just trying to increase our awareness and if we're thoughtful if we're deep thinking we try to increase our awareness about the things that really matter you know what is the purpose of my life what is the meaning of it and then once we have an inkling that self-realization is the goal or or nobility is the goal or generosity is the goal my father was never a devotee of this path or particularly religious but he was exceedingly moral and exceedingly ethical in the way he behaved and was constant in his extreme attentiveness to right action so it it's not a question of what you say because many people can use very spiritual words and invoke the name of god but they are lacking showing a singular lack of awareness about what actions will actually produce fulfillment and happiness so the words that we use god is not listening to our speech he's looking at the vibration of our heart and so what we are here to do the right attitude toward the spiritual path is i'm so fortunate that i'm on the path that i have begun to even ask the question why am i here whatever stage of answer i'm in that everything that follows from that is what will naturally happen once that awareness increases and we have to become very enthusiastic about every increase in awareness that we have but the problem is many of those increases in awareness are telling us about our limitations either our personal limitations the limitations of people around us the limitations for happiness in this world the obstacles within ourselves that we still have to overcome you've heard me repeat a number of times when i was it was revealed to me that a karmic condition i thought i'd overcome was in fact had just gone on a small holiday and had now come back from its vacation and was in in my heart with a vengeance and i was so distressed about it so being distressed about it is the wrong attitude acknowledging that it was something that was limiting and therefore had to be overcome is not necessarily a cause for dancing you know dancing and singing but it's just a fact that has to be accepted and so swamiji tried to tell me as i was weeping that this is very good news you weren't putting out enough energy to overcome it because you didn't know it was there and now you do now you see this is right attitude toward the spiritual path oh i'm supposed to do 108 kriyas morning and night i mean where supposed to came from i'm not even going to discuss that 
but I've decided that I am a person who will, but then I'm discovering that I am a person who won't. (laughs) So what do we do about that? What attitude do we have when truth is revealed to us? And if the attitude we have when truth is revealed to us is one of extreme interest and then creative um, analysis, so to speak, to figure out what is realistic for me to do about it and what will I do about it. If we have that attitude toward our spiritual life, we will persevere to the end and we will be successful. If our attitude is one always of, oh, it's just so much trouble. Why does God always do this to me? Oh, master, not again. Oh, I thought I was over this. Oh, why is this happening to me? Or just even, I can't, I can't. I can't. That's wrong attitude. And you can see just from that why Master felt attitude was everything. Because all faults can be overcome eventually. Swamiji said to me once, you know, just persevere. And he gave me a couple of suggestions. And everything else will follow, he said, in relatively short order. My favorite, perhaps, of all the things he said to me, relatively short order. Relative to what? (laughs) Relative to this one incarnation, to the millions I've had before, to the 500,000 I'm having in front of me, relative to eternity, but actually relatively short order because delusion will always eventually succumb to truth. And it's really just a question on our part of how much we want to go in circles before we just accept that. So yes, it matters what's ego. Yes, it matters what's God's will. Yes, all these things really matter. But the most most important thing that matters is that we have a very open and curious mind as to who I am and what I need to do next and what peculiar obstacles Master is putting in front of me and how I apparently misunderstood because now I'm getting a chance to understand again. And then... What is the reason for even impatience? It's like this is the only way to get there from here. We're driving from Pune out to here and we were on that really awful part of the road, you know, and it's just like there was just no point in going faster <laughs> because it was just going to be what it was. And, and you know, it would have been foolish to rage against it. But when we find ourselves on that part of the path, We tend to think, oh, I've done something wrong, something is terrible. No, no, we're just on that part of the path. Now, I have some specific thoughts about how to understand what right attitude is, but I think before we go to that, I'm going to give you all just a short break. Are there questions immediately from what I've just said? And if not, I'll go on a little bit longer before we start. Yes. So we're going to immediately follow Dharana's instructions. Well done. Okay. Hi, Asha. Uh, thank you so much for that uh, discussion. You mentioned about accepting things cheerfully. Mm-hmm. And you also spoke about humility being self-honesty. Right. And so when you're honest with yourself, and when you know things are, are difficult, and you find it hard to be cheerful about it, mm-hmm. how do you reconcile? How can you cheerfully accept? Well, yeah. um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what Swami defines as some of the five essential attitudes. And he, I mean, this is where I was going next, but I'll just summarize it a little bit. 
The second one is positive thinking at all times. And the third one is even-mindedness. Now, neither of those are mindless cheerfulness. You know, positive thinking at all times um, says that I don't lose hope. And it's, it's unrealistic. And this is, again, this is where we go a foot and a half off the path and don't really know where we are. It's unrealistic to think I'm going to be cheerful all the time. And Swamiji was not cheerful all the time. I mean, because he had a very tender heart and serious things happen. Uh, people make grave mistakes. He could see karmic consequences. His heart would break for much that happened in the world. And he wasn't able just to smile on as if nothing had happened because he could see implications of great suffering. It's, it's naive to think that we can always uh, be immune to the ups and down waves of this life. So a much more profound way of uh, thinking of it, right attitude, is exactly what he has. Positive thinking at all times does not mean that we don't know what's going on, that we're, we don't know that what you're about to do is going to be disastrous for you, or what I have just done has disastrous implications for me. That's humility. You know, this was a terrible mistake, and now I'm going to have to work my way out of this. But positive thinking at all times means it can be done. And it will be done. And even if I lie down and pretend I'm not going to do it for a really long time, sooner or later, I'm going to do it. I've summarized positive thinking at all times to this little phrase. If it's not the happy ending, it's not the ending. And therefore, no matter what's going on, if it hasn't resolved itself into bliss then it's not finished. But there may be a lot of very hard days and nights between now and when that time comes. But positive thinking means that it... it, Positive thinking is so simple, it's just faith in God and faith in the promise of the masters. I mean, simple is not the same as easy. But if everything happens by the will of God, and this is the will of God, then I have to be positive about it. I I can be rebellious, I can be unhappy, I can be devastated, I can be just lying in my bed for days at a time with the covers pulled up over my head, but still some part of me knows that sooner or later this is going to resolve for bliss. And that, that's power. Just to be cheerful is not power. Sometimes it's it's foolish under cir- under the circumstances, or it's what Swami calls wishful thinking instead of positive thinking. He says, wishful thinking is invading the neighboring country with 10 soldiers, hoping hoping that the army will be on vacation. He said, (laughs) that's wishful thinking. You know, positive thinking is training, planning, making decisions, you know, then going forward realistically. So that's, that's how we balance it. I mean, one of the things I tried to put across in this book that I've written about Swamiji was how realistic, how real he was in his life. And he, they were, I, I mean, I speak a lot about the undercurrent of joy and the, and how funny he was and how much fun we had. But that, but it was by no means always like that. He he wasn't moody, but when he became serious about something, he became really serious about it. And when he had an issue that was big. 
he just he he didn't he didn't feel he had to put on a front in front of anyone he was just completely who he was but underneath that was this faith that if god has sent it to me he has also sent me the answer will that answer come in a way that pleases me and is easy for me not necessarily so to go back first attitude that Swami says, the first attitude of the devotee is courage, which is really something to think about. The first attitude of the devotee is courage. Most people do not undertake the arduous task of self-transformation because it's intimidating, it's terrifying. It means that sooner or later I'm going to have to deal with everything. Sister Gyanamata said, I, she had to realize that Divine Mother wanted her to give up everything. She said, even those things that were mine by right, is how she put it, I love that phrase, that harmed no one. But if they were something she was holding that said, I would be happier if. This is required for my happiness. Anything other than complete surrender to God Every piece of it has to be removed. Who wants that? I mean, really, a big part of us wishes that there were some other alternative. So it takes great courage just to realize that this is really what's going to happen. This is, this is really what I'm going to do. And many, many, many tests on the spiritual path are tests of nothing but courage. Just do you have the courage? I was recently in a circumstance where just great disharmony with my guru bhais and terrible confusion. And I just got so sad because I just, I couldn't see any way through what was going to happen. And I just was sort of folding up inside myself and became very sad and very quiet. And usually I have great faith in my ability to explain things to people and I could see nothing was going to work. So my response was, I was, I was basically just going to give up. And, I, and so I was in that, like that. I woke up in the middle of the night. Well, I feel like Swami woke me up in the middle of the night. He said, you coward. And I had to realize, yeah, that's exactly right. It was a very, very difficult challenge in front of me, and I decided that I just wouldn't do it. And he just said, you're a coward. You know, it, I mean, I had to then think what, what is next, but that's, that's really all I was doing. I had lots of other, I had lots of other things all around it while it was okay, but the bottom line of it was this was going to be hard. I didn't know how I was going to do it. It was going to be unpleasant, and I'd rather not. So what we, we really have to cultivate just that simple quality of courage, and we need to cultivate it in every small way that we can, Emotional courage is the main courage, you know, spiritual courage, physical courage doesn't hurt, but that's, it's just wherever there's fear. I, uh, I had a very interesting, quite convoluted experience, which was part of this. There was a person in my world, in the community that I lived in, who's, who sort of came and went. And as Swami, I was not drawn to him. Something about him I found, I just found him difficult. And I just tried to avoid having to deal with what was really just a prejudice on my part. I mean, I could objectify it in certain ways, but it was really just a small-minded prejudice. So it was always a little cold toward him. Um, And then 
I mean, this goes way into another circumstance. I was trying to learn to scuba dive. And when I first had my, when I first, had my first experience, I had a, a claustrophobic moment and it set up a, a lot of fear in me. So even though I did learn and I was able to do it for a while until I realized human beings are not meant to stay underwater and then I just gave it up. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why we're above water, not underwater. <laughs> but when I was having to face into it again, and I was very, I was so frightened. I actually was a little sick. I was so scared. And I was just lying awake at night asking Divine Mother, you know, to help me. And I got no, I got no comfort. And this strange juxtaposition came into my mind, which is this person that I had never really been willing to open my heart to, he needed compassion, but I wasn't willing to give it. So I needed compassion. <laughs> but I had created a world in which those who needed compassion did not receive it. That was the world that I had created. So in my hour of need, Divine Mother said, why should I help you? You know, And it, maybe that was my imagination, but I felt that there was a direct relationship to that. You know, there's a, a lot of lessons in there and a lot of them are about courage. Courage in facing into my own fear, the courage to face into my desire to continue to hold this person at a distance because I didn't like his vibe, you know? Courage to just say, what difference does it make? I was talking the other night about that. I, I just used to hold a lot of people at a distance because of just some, like, why? And so I just decided, I'm, it doesn't hurt me to be with people who are, who are not exactly like me. I mean, like, where did my way of being become like the, st the gold standard for humanity. <laughs> and I was saying the other night when I really made that decision, God sent me this man. He was from somewhere in Eastern Europe. His English was almost impossible to understand. And because he didn't speak English well, he thought if he spoke it more loudly, I would understand him better. He had no sense of personal space and he was six and a half feet tall. So he would talk to me like this. He would just lean over me like this in a very loud voice and say things that he thought I needed to hear that I could barely understand, you know, and everything in you says, I don't have to do this. I don't want to do this. And, and all these good reasons why I shouldn't do this. But, and I'll use the word courage, like, what am I afraid of? So he talks to me like, you know, what's the problem here? And a tremendous amount of time, we panic first. And we decide that something can't be done. But if you actually just stop and have the courage just to look at it and ask myself, what am I going to gain by running away from this? Just countless things. What am I going to gain by running away from this? And it's not always easy. And, and we don't... This is what I, where I started at the beginning. We can't just say, oh, I should be different, therefore I will be different. You have to say, I will be different therefore I will persevere. So I would just stand until I began to enjoy him. And then he disappeared and I never saw him again. <laughs> Haven't seen him since. He was just sent to help me. I mean, my experience with trying to scuba dive, it was all just sent to help me. Every loss that I've had in my life, which we've all had many, you know, pos courage to face into it and positive thinking at all times. This is going to be terrible but in the end, I'll be closer to God. You know, that's, that's what we're looking for. Then he says, even-mindedness. And even-mindedness, 
He does say even-minded and cheerful, but not in this particular thing. So even-mindedness means to, to at least keep theoretical awareness of the fact that we have a center. <laughs> I mean, a center of being. And even if we find ourselves pushed way over to this side or way over to this side, always remembering that there's a center point. And the, the more I can stand that. In other words, don't over-dramatize. You know, I was, I was so dramatic when I was younger. I was just so, everything was just so big all the time. And of course, that was what I was saying about guilt. I would just exhaust myself with guilt instead of just even-mindedly saying, well, this was a major failure. So what are we going to do about it next time? So just trying just a little bit to, re- not. I don't even want to say resist because it doesn't serve us to be afraid of what we feel. So we go back to courage. A lot of times people are afraid of what they feel and they think that's spiritual. If I really admit how sad I am about this, if I really admit how afraid I am about this, or or, or how anxious I am whether this is going to work out, somehow that's not spiritual to admit it. But not admitting it does not dissolve it. It just sends it underground where it comes out in some weird way later. So knowing where you stand, knowing what you feel, being aware of your feelings is separate from deciding what you're going to do about them. And so the even-mindedness is, this is how I feel completely. I'm in despair. But there's a part of me that says, just because I'm in despair, it doesn't mean I have to start running my life from it. I'll just, now that I know how I feel, I'll try to apply a courageous, positive attitude to understand what to do about it. And what to do about it may mean to go into seclusion for a month until you get yourself straightened out. It's not necessarily that you can walk forward. When Swamiji had a very difficult um, situation that simply didn't work out, it's 1982 in the book, he just, for many weeks, he was very withdrawn. He just, he couldn't, he, he seriously felt that he had misunderstood Master's guidance. Circumstances were less important the circumstances that didn't come out the way he thought, but in himself, he had acted in the way he thought Master wanted him to act. And the fact that circumstances didn't work out was not a problem, but the fact that he might have misread Master's guidance was very serious, and he was very withdrawn for quite some time, and he was not cheerful, he was not outgoing, he was just very withdrawn. Until one day, he just came out, and he said, uh, Oh, circumstances didn't work out as I expected, but when I actually looked at it, circumstances worked out very well, just completely different. So Master had a plan, Swami said. It was just that I put a form to that plan, and my form was wrong, but my guidance wasn't wrong. Do you understand the difference? But you see, that's what we get to if if we courageously persevere, if we are afraid to go to the depth of our fears and our feelings, we never get to that. And then we actually never get free because instead of actually finishing karma, we just create more complexes around it. That's how Swami put it. It's bad enough that we do this. If we create a complex around it, then even after we've transcended it, we still have a complex. So just be what you are. Sin enthusiastically in public is my phrase. <laughs> Just be what you are before your conscience, God, and your whole community. And then all you have is what you did wrong. 
you don't have any other dimensions. If you're, if you're ashamed of it, then, oh, incredible things begin to happen. And that's what I mean about mistaking what the path is really about. The path is like, wow, look at me. I have so much delusion. Isn't this impressive? But I am the disciple of a God-realized master, and they have promised me that I'll be free. If I have the courage to persevere and remain optimistic, you know, and and don't go completely crazy about it, then it will work out. One man in our community did something pretty awful. Well, maybe moderately awful. Scale of 10, maybe a 6. And everybody knew. Well, actually, I'll tell you two stories. The first one was someone who, who, a wonderful man, who I won't name him in this case, who really just, really, he was extremely creative in the trouble he got himself into. It was really one of the more notably interesting incidents in Ananda. And I wasn't even close with him but we're all in it together. He came up to me. He just walked up to me just like this. Of course, you know, what do you think? He said just like that. (laughs) And it was so much courage. My goodness, he didn't have to talk to me at all. But he did it just, of course, you know, what do you think? Like that. And I looked at him and I just thought, you're going to be a great saint. You know, because of that, because of that kind of courage to not, not merely you know, not, not, not hide, but absolutely force the issue like that. And it was, you know, it was gone like that. How can you do anything but admire someone who behaves like that? And master cheers you on just the same. The other incident I was going to talk about, a, a man also did something not quite as creative as the first fellow, but still impressive. And uh, he was just, he didn't know what to do. I said, You just walk out of the door, you put your chin up, you look everyone right in the eye, you greet them as if everything was normal. I said, in in 12 hours, no one's even going to think about it. All they're going to think is, well, look at him. You know? And you might not all live in community, but you all have each other to a certain extent. But even if you're just by yourself, you just, and you just look right, master, right in the eye. And say, well, here we are. You've been here. You've done this before. You got through it. If you got through it, I can get through it. And if you got through it, you know how to to get through it and you're going to take me. But if we don't have the courage for that first step and we don't have the positive belief that that first step is worth taking, then we just circle around for a very long time. And still nothing happens except that we suffer. I mean, that's just when you, when it's all over, all that you can say is, oh, what happens if I don't do the right thing? Oh, I get to suffer. It's like nothing else happens. I just get to suffer. You're not permanently warped. You're not damned to hell. You just get to suffer. Is this fun? Am I enjoying this? Not particularly. Is there an option? Yeah. But it takes courage to have it. So any other questions or thoughts here? All right. Pardon me. I was just, I was just, I'm not sure that they're. <clears throat> I want to actually just, you know, finish these, because Swami gives us five specific attitudes that are needed by the devotee, and I seldom work as systematically as this, but this is something that Swamiji told us that I found really powerful. The first is really the 
courage, which is the one I press on the most because I, I do find it is the key. The second I started speaking of, which is positive thinking at all times. You know, there's an entire um, realm of teaching, which is affirmations. And affirmations are a very specific way to work with our mental attitudes. And so I'm just going to touch on it a little bit in this context of positive thinking at all times. The, the greater meaning of positive thinking is what I explained earlier, which is not necessarily that we ever lose, that we never lose our, our cheerfulness, but it's a much deeper belief in the nature of life. Somebody asked me over breakfast if there was, of all the things that I've learned from Swamiji over all these years, if there was one thing that stood out the most. I, I absolutely love meeting new people because you, you asked me questions that I never thought about before. But it's like, I thought, I have, the book I wrote is 220,000 words, you know, like, which one of those words is the most important? But I actually thought of an incident that I described in uh, Swami Kriyananda as we have known him. And it was a strange story of my own life because I was born into a Jewish family in 1947. And we didn't have any family in Europe, but every Jew in the world was conscious of what happened in World War II. And I have probably, in order to build courage, I have always often, I I do it less now, but I've often read true life stories of extreme circumstances. You know, whether it's imprisonment or physical or climbing high mountains or just I've read zillions of them. I've I've noticed that I've stopped reading them, which is probably a good sign. But in any case, so naturally, I was very conscious of uh, concentration camps. And I actually used to have this really complicated uh, moral conundrum that would go through my mind. And the conundrum was, you know, it would be one of those movie scenes where we're all prisoners together and you were out for the roll call in the freezing cold and our bare feet or one of those terrible things that they put out there that actually happened. What if the guard starts brutalizing the person next to me? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to throw myself into the fray even though I will undoubtedly be killed? Or am I supposed to stand there and let it happen? And I would actually worry about this. Is this a past life memory? I don't know what it is. I recently learned that not everyone thinks about being imprisoned and tortured. I've always thought about being imprisoned and tortured. I recently found out, I really seriously, like a week ago, I found out that not everybody thinks about that. I'm sure that I have been a revolutionary in many lifetimes, which is why I have to tell everybody a higher truth now. A psychic actually told me that I helped start the French Revolution, which is probably not true, but it's true enough. It's apocryphal. (laughs) So in any case, I've been in those tough circumstances, so this one held me. Finally, I realized I could ask Swami. And in his incredible way of just cutting through the superficial, you know, to me, it's about persecution, it's about prison, it's about righteousness, it's about revolution. I mean, it's just about all these things. Swami went right to what it was, He said, what you're actually asking is in a difficult situation, what does God want? He said, because conceivably by interceding, you could cause difficulty for everybody. You know, if you go through those kinds of scenarios, 
or it could be that you were born to have the courage to sacrifice your life. You just don't know which one of these things is right. And the only way you can know is that if superconscious intuition comes in in that moment and you just act according to that. Because it's not, it can't be a reasoned decision. And he said, the only way you will know what God wants you to do in a moment of crisis is if you have practiced when it's easier. And so the question that I was asked, and I realized practice when it's easier is actually probably the most important thing I ever heard from Swamiji in many very serious ways. Because again, we tend to dramatize the spiritual path and we sort of just think of it in really grand terms and we forget that a lifetime is made up of individual decisions and each one of those decisions happens in a minute. And whatever energy we set in motion now is what we experience a minute from now. And it's what we experience at the end of this incarnation. There are these incredible stories of people who have death and return experiences and which they go through their life reviews. And some of them are just so enlightening. One of my favorite is a, a Dr. Ritchie is his name. And he's a, a man in America, a, Southern, a Southerner, and they speak English with a particular accent, devoted to Jesus. When he, he became a psychiatrist and did a lot of good work in his life. But when he was 21 or 22, he was in the American army and he was stationed at this huge army base in Texas. And the, I think it was the Spanish influenza or the Spanish flu went through and killed thousands of people. And so he died from the flu when he was in an army hospital there. And then he went off into this incredible experience and then had to get back into his body, had to find his body, which was difficult because he couldn't tell which one it was. He actually found his body by the ring on his finger because they were all soldiers. They all looked alike and he couldn't figure out which one was his, but then he saw the ring and recognized the ring. These strange things that happen. So he's 21. He's hardly done anything in his life. And he suddenly is, finds himself in this room in which 360 degrees, his life is simultaneously playing out in front of him. And his mother had died at a young age. His father had remarried a woman who was very kind and wanted to take care of him. But his mother's parents always wanted him to resist the new mother out of loyalty to the mother who had died. And even though he knew it was wrong, he still allowed himself to do it. So he'd been kind of a stinker through most of his childhood because his father and his, and his stepmother were trying to take care of him and he was always, you know, listening to this selfish voice on the other side and being bad. And he wasn't really nice to anyone. So he's there and he meets Jesus. And Jesus says to him, how much have you loved? And he says things like, I'm just a kid. What do you expect of me? I've hardly started my life. And Jesus says, how much have you loved? And then he defends himself several more times. And then he starts looking at his whole life. He and Jesus are standing there. He's looking at everything. And he sees that it's not a very pretty picture. There were all these opportunities when people offered him love and instead he was selfish in return. He said the only thing that was any good at all, he describes it, was he was a boy scout and he did some, he, like he got some high badges or something like that. 
So he's standing there with Jesus trying to defend himself against this question. Everything that he's looking at looks pretty bad except for this moment of where he became an Eagle Scout. And Dr. Ritchie says he kind of spread his arms out hoping to the block the view of as much of this as he could see and points over to this like this. And he said immediately he could feel that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing like this. But what happened, and now he says this in a southern accent, he says, the, the Savior, which is how he called Jesus. He said, the Savior was amused, was the word he said, amused. The Savior was amused. And, you know, just here's this guy trying to, like, what, fool God? You know, he's there with Jesus, and he's just trying to fool him by just pointing over here like this, like all of it's going to go away. And he said... As soon as Jesus did that, laughed, in other words, he said he just, everything, he just completely relaxed. He realized, what is the point? And he also felt like, Jesus loves me. That's the whole point of this, is that I'm not here to be punished. I'm here to be loved. Jesus loves me. I mean, he just surrendered completely. But then he had to come back into his body and, and, you know, then he started getting really happy and the idea of dying just seemed really terrific to him. But he also saw that he'd made pretty much a mess of his life so far. And Jesus saw it too and so he sent him back. So Dr. Ritchie said after he came back, everything was different. Because now he knows that when this life ends, which he may, I don't know if he's still on the planet, Jesus is going to ask him one question which is how much have you loved? Not how rich did you get, how this, how that, how many people admired you, you know, how your sons or your daughters became so important. You can ask one question, how much have you loved? And so, you know, that's, that's our job here. When I was telling that crazy story about being frightened to scuba dive, I mean, that's what Divine Mother was saying. You want my love? How much, have you, how much love have you given? And it wasn't unkind. It was just, what did you expect? You know, you set up, we, we set up a universe that reflects the vibrations that we're putting out. I mean, that's the really, really good news. I remember once when I got really out of tune. I'm not really quite sure how I did it, but I did it. I just made one bad decision after another until I was just feeling quite isolated and quite unhappy. And then it occurred to me that actually... I had just done it to myself. I had just made one bad decision and then, then that led to another bad decision and then I made another bad decision until I was out of the camera frame completely and then I had to come back into it again. <laughs> but I, and, and it's just like somehow I felt like the world had done something to me. But when I was, had the courage to be honest about it, I realized I had done it to myself, but then that was the good news. Positive thinking at all times. I walked in the wrong direction. I just have to turn back and walk in the right direction. Of course, there's the global humiliation that goes with that, but like, and? So what difference does that make? And then I remember I, I had an aversion. You know, this was my great karmic test through life was to have, to not like people I didn't like. And uh, there was a couple that I, I mean, there, I, there was nothing wrong with them, but I, I wasn't much in tune with them. And so I didn't relate to them very much. But I was in a, a store in town. Uh, I was living at the village then. It was one of those stores with aisles, lots of aisles, you know. 
so that you can pretend not to see someone. If you're just walking along the end, you see them out of the corner of your eye and you can just pretend you didn't notice them. So I saw this particular couple there and I pretended I didn't notice them. And then the question came, how much have you loved? And I thought, not very much. So gosh, surprise, surprise, you're feeling lonely. So I turned back and I deliberately went to them and I loved them because they were perfectly lovable. You know, the differences between us were so superficial compared to the things that were the same. And we just talked, but I didn't try to get anything from them. I just thought, how much can I love? And the most amazing thing happened, this extraordinary bond. I formed this bond with these two people. And for they, they eventually left Ananda, but for the next 15 years, we never really did anything together. We never hung out together, anything like that. But whenever we saw each other, we just loved each other a great deal. And I felt that was Divine Mother saying, see, you can create a world. You can create the world that you want in any circumstances that you're in if you have the courage and the energy to do it. You know, So that, that's what we're dealing with. Let me just say, um, the fourth attitude that Swamiji has is living for God alone which is really um, a marvelous kind of cutting through everything. This is just exactly Jesus' question to Dr. Ritchie. How much have you loved? What am I living for? You know, what is of value to me? What is important? Even if we're taking care of our family or you know, providing a home or anything that we're doing, but what am I really living for? Am I living for myself or am I living for God? what is of value to me? So these are, these are the attitudes because you see, then when accolades come to you and you become very important in the world, am I living for the recognition of the world or am I living for God? Or when everything gets taken away from you and no matter how hard you try, the karma that you're living through is that it's not going to work out. What am I living for? Now, bear in mind, these are the attitudes that Master emphasized that we keep us on the path. Courage, positive thinking, which is faith in God's loving presence and the divine plan, even-mindedness, the ability not to become panicked over what happens, but just even if I'm upset, to just persevere. And then to realize underneath it all, what am I living for? I'm living for God. And if God has given me all these things to do. You see, Swamiji was such an interesting blend of this because he was so ambitious for Master. You know, the fact that, that God was the only reality in his life, he was more busy and more interested and more creative. And the word I have to use constantly is ambitious. He was extremely ambitious. He was extremely ambitious to create for Master because he was living for God alone. He wasn't here to be comfortable. He wasn't here to be well-liked. He wasn't here to have it easy. He was here to do what God had asked him to do. And Master had commissioned him, you have a great work to do, editing, writing. And then Swami just, Swami knew his job basically was to take the extraordinary inspiration of Master and make it accessible to the rest of us. That's what Swami did. He created what, what I call a culture of self-realization, which is he just, showed us what it looks like. Well, he showed us what it looks like to live for God. And that's why I wrote the book as I did, just chronicling year after year what he did, why he did it, why he was thinking it. And I, above all, what I wanted to put there is why he did what he did 
and how he thought about it so that all of us will understand what it means to live for God alone because it's too easy for us to fold that into a, oh, well, I just really shouldn't work too hard. You know, what does it matter? The world is just an illusion. It's just a dream. I mean, that's a very easy way to use the spiritual path to support the core of us instead of the Pandavas. Because after all, it is a dream, and no one knew that more than Swamiji. But my job within this dream is how much can I love? Not because for the sake of the dream, but because the one thing that's not a dream is the continuation of our consciousness. Because you know, the whole world goes away, but we don't. I remember Swamiji talking about death one day and he just said it just like this. Nothing happens when you die, he said. Nothing happens. He said, you're just as present as you were ever present. And people who talk about leaving their bodies and then having to come back into them, the, the most startling thing to them is that they don't disappear, that they're just as they always were. And anyone who meditates and who has any relationship to consciousness outside the body Nothing happens to us. You know, the, our, our sister Tushti, whom many of you know, being here, we all think of her. I was with her for the last month of her life back in the United States. I wasn't with her when she actually stopped breathing, but I was with her until the point where she was so withdrawn that it was just a matter of time. But let's see, what was I going to say about that? What was I talking oh, about death? You know, it's just, it's like... Um, that, that that process of shedding the body is just the purification of the consciousness. And, and as soon as we step out of it, everything that we are is just still there. And all it's the final exam, is how Swami call, calls it. When, uh, when Paula died, and I, I have this story in the book, Swami Kriyananda, as we have known him. She, she died at Ananda. She was a devotee um, and uh, a very deep devotee. She died extremely consciously, just extremely consciously. Swamiji said later that, you know, he believes that she was completely free spiritually. He said, you, you can't die as consciously as that without being a, a highly advanced person. I mean, she basically, she had all of us in the hospital with her. The hospital just gave us completely free reign. She did this little ceremony about midnight with the whispers from eternity and she'd been, uh, she had supplemental oxygen like this. And after that was done, it was about midnight, maybe later than midnight, without any, um, without any comment or anything, I just looked over at her and she pulled it off, just like that, you know. And then a, a couple of hours later, she sort of woke us all up. And, uh, and when I watched her do it, I thought, my, look at that, look at what she's doing. And, and she knew the doctors couldn't do anything for her. She was in the third return of cancer. But we'd been with her for like two days or three days. There was nothing in that moment that would indicate any change except the decision that she made. And then an hour or two later, I don't know if she woke us up or we all just woke up. And there was just a, a big crowd of people in the room. It was really extraordinary. And... Uh, we were we were just listening to her breathe. That's what you do if you're on a death watch. You just listen to somebody breathe. And they breathe in, and then they exhale. And then after they exhale, you wait to see if they're going to breathe in again. 
because the last breath is an exhalation. So, you know, the, the pauses get longer. When Tushti was passing, Tushti went, oh, I know what I was going to say about Tushti. Tushti went right to the edge of passing a number of times. And I, I don't mean this in any way irreverent, but when you're with devotees and they're dying, the, it's not sad. It's not morbid. There's something very joyful about it. And Tushti had some great exit lines, just absolutely like, if this is the last thing she said, it would be so terrific. And then she closed her eyes and then her breath would get so weak. And she would, she, her life force would be just a tiny little throb right here. Tiniest little breath. She did it about four or five times. A whole group of us were so elevated. It's just amazing. It's going to be an amazing moment. And then she would take this huge belly breath and just, you know, just inhale again and then she would be back. Um, and the hospice nurse had a theory, which was because she was a meditator, because the hospice nurse said, basically, no one can go that far out and come back. I mean, it was her profession to help people leave their bodies. She said, nobody goes that far out and then comes back. She said, except if you're a meditator, it's familiar zone to you. You can go way beyond body consciousness and then you can just slip back into it because it's a world that you know. Isn't that an interesting theory? I am in no position to say whether it was true or not. It was just very dramatic. When Tushti finally died, she was all, uh, all alone with just one person. And she'd been completely silent and completely withdrawn for many days. And then one person was with her, not Surendra. Surendra was getting his lunch and... Tushti was alone with, with Daiva, another friend, and she just took that moment to go. Because they often, they often have to leave when the person who's the closest to them isn't in the room, because it's too hard. You know, that's, that's just a fact. Well, with Paula, ah, she was, we were listening to her breathe, and she just kept inhaling again. And I, I can't clearly remember at this moment if there was other conversation. But at one point, she, she just said, her voice comes out. She wasn't, she was withdrawn, but she wasn't at all unconscious. She was completely, fully conscious. And she said, she had, she had a very childlike way of speaking, this is very hard. You have to help me, she said. And I believe Jyotish was there, and I believe he was the one who started chanting Om. So we all just started chanting Om. Were you there, child? We, we, we all just started chanting Om like this. And then Paula said, well, I guess I put this in Finding Happiness. She said, God, Christ, Guru. And that's the last word she spoke. Can you imagine? And then her vo- her, uh, we chanted and her breath got quieter and quieter. Then she just left. Now, that's who we're supposed to be. You know, and we don't get there by, at the moment of crisis, imagining that we can do that. We get there because every minute we have a decision to make. Do I have courage? Do I have faith? Can I remain steady and not panic? Do I live for God alone? What would be the last one? The last one is serving God in all. Who am I moment to moment? Because that's all that's going to last. I was starting with living for God in all, and the fifth one is serving the divine in all, which is really the same. Why am I here? How much have I loved? You see, then life gets extraordinarily simple. 
It's not easy. There's a difference. But it's really, really simple. And, and all the questions that people ask, what should I do? What is my purpose? How do I be in tune? How do I know God's will? Really simple question. How can I serve? How can I love? How can I express faith? When the Savior, in whatever form he comes to me, says, how much did you love? We want to be able to say, with my whole heart, sir. I have words from Swamiji that are so beautiful. He says, uh, when I meet Master again at the after when I cross over to the other side, uh, and Master says, um, you know, did you love me? Do you love me? Swami says, I want to be able to say, I will say, you are all that I have ever loved. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You are all that I have ever loved, whatever form the Spirit comes. Isn't that wonderful? Well, that's what we're here for.